This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For generations, the rights of Southern Utah have raised cattle and world champion saddle bronc riders. Some call them the most successful rodeo family in history. Now Bill and Evelyn Wright, parents to 13 children and grandparents to many more, find themselves struggling to hang on to the majestic landscape where they've been running cattle for 150 years as the West is transformed by urbanization, battered by drought, and rearranged by public land disputes. Could rodeo, of all things, be the answer? Pulitzer Prize-winning writer John Branch chronicles three years in the life of the Wrights in The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West. John Branch is a reporter for the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2013 for Snowfall, a story about a deadly avalanche in Washington state. He was a finalist for the prize in 2012 for his series of stories about a professional hockey player who overdosed on painkillers. His first book, Boy on Ice, won the Penn ESPN Prize for Literary Sports Writing. He was raised in Colorado and he lives with his family now near San Francisco. John Branch will read from and sign copies of The Last Cowboys at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City uh, Saturday, May 19th at 7 p.m. That is free and open to the public. A couple of notes before our conversation today. First note, which could be a big disclaimer or perhaps just an interesting fact. I'm related to the Wright family chronicled in this book. I share a great-great-grandfather with Bill Wright, the patriarch to the extended Wright family featured in the book. And note number two, we recorded this conversation yesterday afternoon with John Branch. He was at the airport, and you'll hear uh, some uh, public address announcements competing uh, with our conversation. Hope it's not too distracting. So with that, here's part one of my conversation with John Branch. How did you discover this, uh, this family? Yeah, I discovered them through an old editor of mine. I used to be a columnist at the Fresno Bee, and uh, when I moved on to the New York Times, I stayed in touch with my old editor there. He had retired um, to the Las Vegas area, and over breakfast one day in Las Vegas, he told me all about the rights. He followed rodeo a little bit um, and just told me about this family of, of boys that were dominating, dominating the saddle brock standings at that time. And thought it might be an interesting story, and he knew a little bit, a little bit about the Wrights and Bill Wright uh, running some cattle up there outside of St. George, and thought this might be a nice tale for the New York Times. And so I, I ended up spending about a year off and on with the Wrights and wrote that story for the New York Times, and that was three years ago. And we decided to, to build it into a, a full-fledged book after that. And so it's rodeo, it's ranching, it's family, it's heritage, uh, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, tell me how you came up with the, the, uh, the title, The Last Cowboys. Yeah, I mean, I really think that there's a sense that, um, you know, people who maybe aren't familiar with the West um, maybe believe that this whole world is kind of disappearing or has disappeared. They may not realize that there are 600 or 700 rodeos out there every year. They may not realize how many people are still involved in the ranching. But it is, and it does feel like something that's fading. 
And so it's not hard to imagine my kids, my grandkids, maybe my great-grandkids, not ever really having a lot of experience with this. You know, will cattle ranching continue to, to be a big part of the West? Um, how will we treat our public land? Um, so it's really a nod to kind of a question. Are, you know, are, these, are these the last cowboys? Are, are these the last vestiges of a, uh, of a West that really made our country? Uh, so you go back and uh, you pick up a little pioneer heritage of uh, Bill Wright. He's the, the patriarch of the, of the family. And uh, it's coming down to what? Uh, his sons are the sixth generation and his grandsons are the seventh generation, your grandchildren mm-hmm. are the seventh generation. Uh, tell me a little bit about how this uh, family got started in, in, in this land. Yeah, you know, they were part of the Mormon migration. I think Bill's great-great-grandparents came in 1849 to the Salt Lake Valley. And then as part of the cotton mission, came down south in, I believe, 1862 and have been around that area ever since. Um, Evelyn, his wife, um, her family about the same time uh, came down to that area, and she, her family's from Tokerville. And so Bill and Evelyn, you know, five or six generations later, then met as kids, as teenagers uh, in Hurricane and began dating. But they have deep roots there. Um, the family's been running cattle on... Um, Co-op Terrace and um, Smith Mesa for most of the time since then, um, including after the, his, I believe, Bill's grandparents, now I forget now, great-grandparents or grandparents, um, homesteaded uh, in that area as well. So, yeah, they, they, they run deep, and, and cattle has been a big part of all those all those generations. 150 years, right, on, on this land, the family's been there. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, right all around Virgin, um, Smith Mesa, where this uh, a lot of this book takes place, it's just up outside of Virgin, right up against the what is now the Zion border, the western border of Zion. So uh, what are the issues that they're facing? This is, I guess, would epitomize the issues that a lot of ranching families are facing. Yeah, I mean, I really this, this is really a book not really meant to be nostalgic in any sort of way. It's more, um, you know, set fully in the 21st century. And, and the rights, like so many others, are dealing with the issues that people out west are, are dealing with, and that are, that is things like urbanization. You know, a lot of family farms have um, gone by the wayside for whatever reason. Uh, corporate um, interests have bought them up, or they just don't have generations of kids that are interested in doing it. Um, <clears throat> Bill is certainly among those that is dealing in a very real way with the um, federal land issues. You know, he's looked at land over by Bears Ears, and that has scared him off, not knowing what's going to happen with the. Uh, with the borders of Bears Ears, for example. Um, he's not far from Clive and Bundy. Um, you know, he has kind of a love-hate relationship, I think, with, with the federal government. Um, sees both sides of, of their role in what he does. You know, most of the land that he uses to, to raise his cattle is federal land. Um, he's also dealing with things like climate change and drought. Um, the drought of the last few years has thrown the cycles of his herd off. Um, so in, in very micro kinds of ways, he is dealing with all these issues that are, I think, pretty widespread around the West. You know, everything from, from water to federal land use um, to urbanization. And now he's got some of that urbanization coming right to his front door as St. George kind of explodes as a, as a both a retirement community and as a recreational community. Um, he's feeling the squeeze. You know, he thought he used to be out in the middle of nowhere, and now he's starting to feel the squeeze a little bit. Uh, what, by the way, what, did, what does he think of Clive and Bundy and the, the standoff that happened uh, a few years ago? Yeah, you know, he, he, he says he knows uh, Clive and Bundy a little bit and, and considers him a, a good cattleman and a good rancher. Um, certainly Bill does not have the dis- 
position to get involved, I don't think, in any sort of, um, you know, sort of public event like that, but he has opinions. Um, so I think in some respects he probably agrees with Cliven and thinks that Cliven was picked on. Um, you know, that, that, that debate goes back more than 20 years over the desert tortoise. And, uh, you know, Bill wonders, you know, what's next? Is the government going to come tell me that I have the desert tortoise on my land or these black gnats, I think I write in the book, um, that are over, all over the property on hot summer days. He's like, are they going to make that a, a, a protected species and then they're going to tell me I can't uh, raise my cattle here? You know, it's, just, it's another one of those things that frustrates him, I think, with the unpredictability of what the government might come along and do on the land that he believes he's a very good case, caretaker of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you talk to ranching families, they believe they take care of, they have for generations taking care of the land, and, uh, and now it's kind of a mixed... Uh, reaction to you know the, the federal bureaucrats as they see them in, in some cases uh you i guess you yeah. you learned you learned about um federal permits i guess writing this book <laughs> um yeah. i learned from your book about the taylor grazing act of 1934 i guess this is an attempt to head off overgrazing, but uh, some ranchers see maybe over bureaucratization of this issue yeah it's interesting and i think it's it's been painted recently as a very kind of black and white issue this you know should the should the land be in the federal hands or not and i, and I know there in utah it's a big issue uh, a lot of people are, are pushing for local control of these lands if you ask a rancher like bill wright he'll say well it's complicated yeah he has some big issues with the feds um most of his land that he uses is, is blm or uh forest service land he has some big issues but the solution i don't think to him is simply to turn it over to local control. Because right now, as frustrating as it is to have one jurisdiction in the hands of the, of the federal government, um, to him, I think that's probably better than to have land divided up that he has to deal with between the federal government and maybe county government and maybe pri- private land. Um, you know, he doesn't love his landlords always, but maybe it's easier to have one landlord than a, than a bunch of landlords. Now, was it his father? Where, where along the line did, did you know? Did, did they start uh, grazing on public lands, having to do the permits? Um, yeah, uh, his grand. I have to think about the generations here. Either his father or his grandfather back in the '30s um, have a permit. In fact, one of the permits they have is still one that they have continued to renew. That goes back now, whatever that would be, seventy years or so. Um, so. Even from a public land standpoint, they have been using uh, permits for a long time. The, the Wright family has about 1,200 acres there, which sounds like a lot, um, I think, to most folks. But, you know, because of the sparse vegetation there, you need a lot more land than that for uh, a decent-sized cattle herd. And so they, they lease from the federal government and from a, from a few private landowners down there um, close to 20,000 acres. Um, mm. So... What the, the issue is for them is that as they would like to grow this herd, they are really kind of squeezed in there. They have this beautiful island, um, as pretty as any place I think in the world, right at the doorstep of Zion National Park, and they'd like to grow a herd there. But it's you know that land is now very expensive. It's very treasured. He has conservationists who are pushing him to protect it. He has developers pushing him to sell it. Um, he would love to grow there, but he's kind of squeezed in by a lot of uh, different elements now. And these permits are pretty expensive, I, I, I take it. Yeah, I mean, they run in the tens of thousands of dollars. It mm-hmm. uh, depends on what they are, and, and it's, it's really a complicated maze. I had no idea just how complicated they are. You know, they the ranchers don't think in terms of acres. You know, trying to get Bill to explain how many acres he's running, he doesn't think of, of it that way. He thinks of it in terms of animal uh, units per month. 
which means he may get a parcel, a permit that allows him to run on four months a year up to, I'm just making up numbers here, 100 head of cattle. Um, and then outside those four months, he's got to find another permit somewhere else. Um, those permits are, are basically designed, you know, by the BLM, for example, to say this is what this land can handle. It can handle, in that example, 100 uh, cattle over four months, but the other eight months it has to be emptied. Um, what you know you kind of worry about is that when this permit comes up for renewal every 10 years, that the federal government might say, you know what, you're being a little hard on the land there. Instead of 100 head of cattle, now you can only do 50. And as a rancher, you start thinking, well, this makes my life really difficult if I don't know, if I don't have control over that. But for most of these ranchers, it's still a cheaper and better option than it is to have all private land. Uh, you know, most of Utah and many states around the West are majority public land. And so they deal with it, but they don't always like the unpredictability of it. Um, they're trying to build something long-term here, and that, and that can be very difficult when you have a patchwork of, of these permits. And Bill Wright does say that uh, he, you know, if, if he could, maybe he'd sell the, the private land that he does have and uh, try to get uh, something, a, a larger spread, away from the public land there. Right, because his, mm-hmm. his quote is, he says, this ground seems to be worth more scenic land than than agricultural land. He's, he's there, I guess, near Zion or in Zion? Yeah, yeah, right near Zion. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of his, his dilemma, because even if he were to buy the land from fellow private landowners around there, that land is now so valuable that it really makes no sense to run cattle on it. Um, so, you know, does he have enough money to buy that and just make, make this a really pretty ranch? overpaying for the ground there um does he you know follow his head or his heart i mean that family's been there for 150 years and the fact that they're kind of stuck in this uh, catch-22 it's a beautiful spot of land it's a beautiful area uh but now maybe it's become too popular and so now the question is you follow your head and sell it off and go buy land cheaper somewhere else that may be better better for growing a herd or you follow your heart and somehow figure out a way to make this land down there work does uh, when you talk to Bill Wright, uh, does he talk about conservation? Does he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, does uh, the does the do environmentalists come up? You know, the clashes or or working with it. Uh, you know, what, what does he think about conservation? Yeah, yeah uh, you know, he's done actually some conservation programs. You know, there are programs where they will basically pay you to either not farm or to farm certain parts of your property. I and mean, there's lots of little kind of federal grants and things you can do. Um, to try to make this all work. There are conservationists who raise enough money and have done so in that area to say, we would like to pay you, basically, we'll take the land, but you get to keep using it. Um, What we're trying to do is keep it out of developers' hands. So you basically sign a contract saying, I will not sell to developers, and the conservationists now have created some sort of buffer to keep those developers away. Um, Bill's talked to a lot of those kind of folks. Um, again, he, it's always a little bit of a concern, you know, what kind of restrictions will be placed on me, and will those rules change over the years? What happens when my kids take this over or my grandkids take this over? Will the rules have changed? Um, in terms of conservation also, he has, you know, that area has become a, a highly recreational area. There are mountain biking, there's tons of hikers. And in his mind, it's becoming more and more uh, apparent to him that the priority there is more recreation than ranching, and that scares him a little bit. He worries that the BLM will say, you know what, this is not so much a great ranching place anymore. It's now better for recreational uses, mm-hmm. um, and they could sort of chase him away that way. So there are just a lot of uncertainties. All those things are just kind of mixed 
that he's always trying to deal with and trying to figure out what's the long-term solution here. What, what's going to what's what is it going to be like ten years from now, twenty years from now, fifty years from now? And in fact, uh, apparently, um, on his private land, he's thinking of some other things. You know, let's let's do some other things besides ranching, or at least add that on. Yeah, um, it's interesting. It's kind of you know the end of the book. Um, he had a little bit of a of a revelation without giving away too much, but he had a little bit of a revelation that maybe he can tiptoe both sides of this equation. Um, and that's where it stands now. I mean, this is one of those books that I kind of wonder if a year from now. I'll have to add another chapter or two for the paperback version because things will have changed. Um, there is no real end to this book because it's, it's an ongoing saga in, in my mind. Mm-hmm. But as it stands now, yeah, he is um, trying to ride a little bit of the middle ground, trying to hang on to the land and maybe trying to adopt or at least uh, welcome to some extent that encroachment that is uh, now coming toward him. I wonder if I have you talk a little bit about, and I'm, I know from the book, um, Bill Wright and Evelyn, his wife, they do think about legacy, right? You think of past, you, th- you think of the generations before, mm-hmm. and then the, their family, their sons and daughters is going to be sixth generation and the next one seventh generation. You inevitably think legacy, right? And so preserving that legacy and, and are, are, are the kids going to take this over and the grandkids? Yeah, I think that's, they're both kind of stuck in sort of that, um, sort of, interesting transition period right now with the boys because all the boys are still doing rodeo and that seems to be their focus. So Bill is trying to keep the ranch operation going. He'd like to grow it so that the boys, in theory, if they're interested, can step in and do it. And the question is, are they interested? And it seems like every year that goes by, they they, they step into it a little bit deeper. You know, Cody has bought a bunch of head of cattle. Um, Jesse, for example, has bought some permits um, outside of Beaver where they do the summer range. Um, even Cody's kids are taking some of their rodeo earnings now and investing them into the cattle operation, which, you know, they're, they're now invested to some degree financially. And uh, I think Bill sees that as a sign that, yeah, this is something to be handed over, you know, that they are, that they are interested. And, um, yeah, I would be very surprised if Cody and some of his kids and a couple of Cody's brothers um, aren't part of this operation, uh, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. Uh, I think it's Bill who says behind every successful rancher, there's a wife who works in town, right? And this is something we we know <laughs> here in Utah and rural areas. Right. Evelyn uh, Evelyn uh, works in Belford. Uh, maybe first before you go there, um, the I guess Hurricane where they were got too big, so they they moved two or three hours north. Yeah, they moved a little bit north from there. They you know they grew up in that hurricane area and um it just got a little bit too big for them um they wanted to move to a a smaller town and so they moved up to milford and you know a little bit off the beaten path milford probably hasn't changed a lot in 50 years and probably won't change in the next 20 although it has been um sort of overhauled away from like a mining area to a lot of solar and wind power um but they moved up there i think for the what they thought was a smaller town and, and better schools um, but their land is still down outside of Hurricane, outside of St. George there. And so they make that you know hour-long trip um, all the time in between those two. So they're, they're kind of living duplicate lives. The, uh, lots of times Bill is down there on Smith Mesa working the herd, and Evelyn's teaching school up there in Milford, as, as are a couple of their daughters teach mm-hmm. up there as well. Yeah. By the way, um, I guess at a certain point you were in- introduced to that, uh, that pronunciation of the word. Hurricane. Yes. 
Yes. Um, I've never really had anybody explain to me in a real way why it's pronounced hurricane instead of hurricane, the way it's spelled. But I've told people, if you want to, if you drive through there on your way to Zion and you stop there, make sure you say hurricane and they'll think that maybe you're a local, at least you're, you're right. well-educated. That's right. And it's, if you just remember, it's, it, it, it needs to sound like Leverkin, which is nearby. So hurricane Leverkin. Leverkin, yes. Exactly. Um, you talk about, um, and I'm familiar with this, uh, growing up in rural Utah, it's, uh, you describe the way Bill and his family talks. It's not a Texas drawl. It's not a Southern drawl. You describe it as a rural drawl. Yeah. And I don't know how else to describe it really. I was just on the phone with Cody and yeah, and he definitely has that. Um, you know, it's just, I don't, you know, I used to live in Fresno and Fresno had a lot of Oklahomans. A lot of the Okies came and sent and settled in the central Valley. And so there are people in California that have this kind of Oklahoma accent that still exists these many generations later. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a rural thing. You know, I'm, right now I'm in New York, and, you know, you listen to people talk in New York, and not everybody talks that way, but there are some that do. Um, and so yeah, I, I think it just sort of is passed down to the generation somehow and, and manages to stick. Tell me a little bit about the, I guess, the character of the family, this way of life, um, family culture. It would be similar to many other you know, a ranching families, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's interesting or an interesting aspect of this book is that this, this family in so many ways is just a typical family, right? They're, they're just a family trying to stick to traditions. They see family first in just about every decision that they make. Um, they're holding on to ways that they've been holding on to for many, many years. Um, you know, they're trying to build a future in the 21st century through ranching and rodeo. Not a lot of people, I think a dwindling number of people would see that as a as your ticket to a healthy future. Um, but they're they are also extraordinary in a couple of ways. One is that they have all these world champion saddle bronc riders, which then kind of allows them to take some of that money, and you don't get really rich in, in rodeo, and the next rodeo could be your last because there are a lot of injuries in rodeo, but they do very well. So Several of the brothers do pretty well. So they have this kind of seed money if they want to use it for ranching, which kind of gives them a leg up over maybe some other families. Um, and they will really want to do it all together. You know, I thought maybe when I got into this, I would find that the next generation would be like, no, I don't want to do this. I want to move to Salt Lake and work in an office and go to college and become a finance major or something. They all seem to really want to continue the tradition of working out on the land as a rancher um, or some sort of in rodeo. Um, and, and, I have not come across any of the rights of those 13 that have really stepped away and sort of become like a black sheep from, from what they've been doing for a lot of generations now. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer John Branch. And he chronicles three years in the life of the Wright family based in Milford, Utah. And their uh, ranching operation is down near Zion National Park. In his book, The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. We're talking about that book on the program today. John Branch will read from and sign copies of The Last Cowboys at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Saturday, May 19th, 7 p.m. That event is free and open to the public. We'll be talking about the ranching side of this story. We'll get into talking about the very interesting uh, rodeo life. And uh, the Wright family uh, features three World champion saddle bronc riders. Talk about, about rodeo following this break. This is Dr. Taki May for Bringing More to Life. 
Many patients and close family members are interested in discussing end-of-life issues with their physician. By speaking openly, the subject of death can become less of a taboo. People contend with fears, needs, and desires. Fear of pain, fear of indignity, fear of abandonment, and fear of the unknown. Open and direct discussions can ease many of these fears. By being involved in these discussions, you can help strengthen relationships within the family and reduce the isolation experienced by a dying parent. Talk with your parents and with their physician so you can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and AggieCribs.com, produced and maintained by USU Student Media, offering Logan housing options, the ability to buy or sell contracts, and other resources. Drop-down boxes customize housing searches. Details at AggieCribs.com. I'm Carrie Bringhurst, News Director and Morning Edition host here at Utah Public Radio. Our Utah Public Radio news team serves as a statewide source with reporters in Logan, Moab, Southern Utah, Salt Lake City, and Provo. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, upr.org, share ideas on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to include hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening. This episode of Access Utah is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For generations, the rights of Southern Utah have raised cattle and world champion saddle bronc riders. Some call them the most successful rodeo family in history. Now Bill and Evelyn Wright, parents to 13 children and grandparents to many more, find themselves struggling to hang on to the majestic landscape where they've been running cattle for 150 years. As the West is transformed by urbanization, battered by drought, and rearranged by public land disputes. Could rodeo, of all things, be the answer? Pulitzer Prize-winning writer John Branch chronicles three years in the life of the Wrights in his book, The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West. And in the second part of our conversation with John Branch, we'll get into talking about the rodeo life. John Branch will read from and sign copies of The Last Cowboys at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Saturday, May 19th, 7 p.m. And that event is free and open to the public. Here's part two of my conversation recorded yesterday at the airport. John Branch was at the airport um, with uh, Pulitzer Prize winner John Branch. 
three world champions uh, among those sons. Um, in fact, uh, Milford, you drive in and, and uh, they acknowledge that this the home of the Wright family, home of world champions, right? That's exactly right. You would drive in and there is a kind of a um, signs on the three entrances to, to Milford, the three different highways that kind of come in and intersect there are signs that used to say, when I first started reporting this, this is the home of Cody Wright, um, two-time world champion, and then Jesse won, and then Spencer has since won, and they've had to update their signs a few times. Mm-hmm. And even the little rodeo ring that is near the um, the ballpark there in the center of town, they've named um, after Cody Wright. So there's a sign there as well. So you, certainly they are the most famous residents in, in Milford, and um, there are a lot of rights there. And it, if you're, if you're finding, finding yourself wandering through Milford for whatever reason, if you're on that road, you'll certainly uh, know, it's hard to miss, that Cody Wright and his brothers are uh, are the world champion saddle bronc riders there in town. So, uh, Bill and Evelyn, 13 kids. Yeah, they had 13 kids. Um, you know, for people like me, I'm, I'm t- 10 years younger than Evelyn. I have two kids that are still growing up. She has 13 kids. I think she's close to 40 grandkids now, and I believe it's either seven or eight grand, great-grandkids. Hmm. She's 60. Um, yeah. They started young, right. <laughs> uh, 13 kids over the course of, I don't know how many years, maybe 24 years or so. Um, but seven of those 13 are boys, and every one of those seven, led by Cody, who's the oldest of the boys, um, went into rodeo. Mm-hmm. And they've all then sort of fallen in line into Saddle Bronc. Yeah. And now Cody's boys, you know, Cody's only a little over 40, but he's got three boys now that are all professional rodeo cowboys as well. They're ages, you know, roughly 18, 20, 22. And, in fact, one of his boys has now won a world championship. Um, you know, I tell people this is like the, the Manning family is a football with all those quarterbacks. If only the Manning family had about five or six more NFL quarterbacks. <laughs> That's right. Plenty more where that came from, right? Uh, let's talk exactly. a bit about the about the rodeo. This this is extraordinary. Um, Bill, Bill did what? He did uh, bull riding and he did some saddle bronc and he... He migrated toward uh, Saddle Bronc. You, you describe, I think this is your description, um, it's like uh, being in an eight-second car wreck. That's your description of bull riding. <laughs> of bull riding, yeah. Um, yeah, to the right, you know, they, all the boys have, have started out as kind of all-around cowboys. Um, you know, they're pretty good ropers and that kind of thing, too. They do a lot of high school rodeos and then college rodeos to some extent. And then they all, every single one of them has then sort of merged and started to um, – really focus on saddle bronc. And I think the reason is Bill believes it's the most beautiful of those, of those rough stock events. He thinks it's the most real because it's actually, you know, its roots are from trying to um, break horses. Um, it's not like bull riding, which is probably just some drunken stunt some night, but somebody said, I dare you to get on that bull. Um, he thinks there's a real purpose in saddle bronc, or at least it has a heritage with a real purpose. And he also recognizes, and I think now the rest of the boys do, that you can be a saddle bronc rider for a lot of years. You don't see a lot of old bull riders. Um, as much prestige and maybe money you might be able to make in bull riding these days. But you don't get old very well in bull riding. And so saddle bronc, as much as these guys are getting hurt, and the book is filled with a litany of all their um, injuries. And I, I think you still will understand that, that saddle bronc, if you're going to choose a crazy sport, saddle bronc is probably the least crazy of those. Um, and I mean, people who are around rodeo know that injuries are a part of it. Uh, maybe fewer, a, a few fewer in saddle bronc. I had a friend one time yeah. was into bull riding. I did it uh, professionally for a while and, uh, you just waited for whatever the injury was that season. You know, you just, you just knew there was going to come one. Um, but, uh, 
t- tell us the the rules. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, bronc saddle bronc riding. Yeah, so saddle bronc riding. I mean, it's just like the other ones where you basically need to hang on for eight seconds. Um, what's interesting about saddle bronc is that you're being judged on how pretty it looks. Really, um, the judges on the on the rodeo floor there. They're judging both your your ride, that's half the score, and they're judging how well the horse is doing, is bucking. That's half the score. And so you need to have a good horse that's bucking hard and bucking, for the most part, straight up and down. It's not like bull riding where people, where the bulls will spin in circles and, you know, it's like trying to stay on a kaleidoscope. Saddle bronc, broncs are, you know, the best ones will just go up and down really, really high. And they're trying to get you off. And the best cowboys to get a big score is to basically look like you're make, trying to make it look very easy. And when the horse's front hooves hit the ground, your front feet or your feet um, need to be up as high on the neck, up toward the mane as possible. And when the horse then kind of recoils and jumps off its back legs, you pump your feet back. And in theory, you're like a dance partner. Um, so sometimes the, the best ca- the best saddle bunk rides look kind of simple. It's usually not the crowd-pleasing rides that get the best scores. It's the ones that look like this man and this horse are in tandem together. Well, here's a quote from you. Clinging for dear life excites the crowd, but it dulls the judges. Um, that's yep. it. You know, that's a, that's the kind of the the dilemma there. I wonder, um, yep. I, don't, I don't know, you maybe never talked to the rights about this. Uh, or maybe, I don't know if you have an opinion on this. I have wondered within myself when I've seen bull riders now with helmets, and and I've thought uh, that is very prudent. That's great for them, but it mm-hmm. kind of dulls the excitement for me. And so, what does that say about me? You know, <laughs> right? And it's interesting because I think in the professional bull riders now, the tour that goes around the country, um, sort of separate from the rodeo circuit, I believe they are required to wear helmets. I did a story for the New York Times several years ago about that group, um, and at that time they did not. But it's also it's you know kind of like what we've seen in football, and then we saw in hockey. Hockey had helmets, and then they kind of grandfathered it in. Um, so you do see in the rodeos, you'll see some bull riders with helmets, but not all of them. Um, and I don't think I've seen a saddle bronc rider with a helmet. Um, they're just wearing cowboy hats. And so, yeah, concussions are a name in the game. Mm-hmm. I've written a lot over the years about concussions in sports. Um, we have not, there's not been a lot of research, I don't think, done on rodeo cowboys and what kind of brain diseases they may get from, from a bunch of hits to the head. But certainly that is one of the fears that they, uh, that they fall a lot, get kicked a lot in the head, and um, you know, you just hope it's nothing tragic or uh, life-altering. There's a scene. Uh, this is in your New York Times article. Uh, you know, the first came out first. And now you have the book, mm-hmm. uh, where Cody uh, on his dismount. Um, I don't know if you call it that, but he's getting off the horse. There's usually a, what a rider that comes up could take you off, or you can, or I guess you jump off. Mm-hmm. He severely dislocated his shoulder. But then he he gets back on. I, I guess a little while later, you gotta you gotta make the ride to make the money, right? And uh, <laughs> exactly re- right. Really taped up his and and he does a beautiful ride, except he forgets to do one move that's required and and he's disqualified. I guess and it's because he's yeah. worried about his shoulder. Yeah, this is kind of a sticking point in rodeo, and, and the rights have, have been on both sides of this, and that's called the markout rule. And the markout rule says for most rodeo. Um, they have the markout rule. And that means when that horse first comes out of the chute and its first jump and it lands up on its, or it lands on its front feet, your feet have to be up above the shoulders of the horse. If for some reason the horse comes out and on the first jump its front feet hit the ground, you have your feet back, which is kind of the more natural thing to do because you want to clench onto the side of the horse. 
then a flag is thrown. And it's literally like a penalty flag in football. And so you have the greatest ride in the world. And we've seen some that are, you know, 90-point rides out of 100, which are extraordinary. And it actually counts for zero because a judge has deemed that your feet weren't in the right place on the first jump. And the rights have lost world championships over that. And others have lost world championships over that. Um, you know, rodeo sticks to its, tr- its traditions, too. There's no replay for the most part, um, which might prove otherwise the way other sports have gone to replay. Um, and, and anymore, and especially when you get to the national finals rodeo in Las Vegas in December, you could be talking about tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollar differences over, over a pretty subjective call. So, yeah, it's an interesting aspect of rodeo. Tell me a little, little bit about the lifestyle. It was, I, I learned a lot reading, uh, reading the book. Um, it's, it's days and days, hours and hours on the road, hundreds and thousands of miles. You get to the rodeo, and you might be bucked off. Zero dollars, right? Or, or you might, you right. might win I the mean, purse. Yeah, their, their life is extraordinary. It's one of the things that I learned very quickly that I thought was most surprising in that when I talk to people about this, they are like, really, that's how that works. Yeah, there are no guarantees in rodeo. Um, so they will drive, and I'll give you an example. They'll drive somewhere like this coming up weekend and get to a rodeo to compete on Friday night. And they may get bucked off or they may miss their mark and get a zero score. They may actually ride well but be out of the money, and they get zero dollars. There's no guarantee just for showing up. And then they will leave that rodeo, usually before the rodeo actually ends. There's a few more events after Saddle Bronc. And they'll get back in their truck to beat the crowd out of the fairgrounds or wherever it's being held. And they may drive overnight to be at a rodeo the next day, the next afternoon. And they may time it to then go to a rodeo maybe a few hours away that evening. And then maybe another Sunday rodeo the following day. They, they, they will sometimes do four or five rodeos in one weekend. They will drive hundreds of miles between rodeos, often overnight. These guys are all putting 100,000 miles on their trucks every year. And they camp in the back. They have campers usually on the back. And so usually you have four guys in a truck. You're splitting expenses. You have two guys up front hanging out and driving, and you usually have two guys in the back sleeping. Um, it's funny now, whenever I drive around the West, my eye is very keen about that. Ah, there's a rodeo cowboy zipping by. You can just sort of see their trucks and kind of mm-hmm. recognize what they look like now. Um, it's an extraordinary nomadic lifestyle that they live. And, you know, you and I who maybe go to the rodeo on a Friday night and think it's all fun, these guys are pulling in a half an hour before it starts, and they're out the door before um, the rodeo even ends, moving on to the next rodeo. And they estimate, I think this was Cody estimate, estimated, you you got to pull in, what, $65,000, $70,000 just to break even uh, on your expenses. Yeah, yeah. And most of these rodeos, I mean, they, they, you know, they know how the, how the system works. They know which rodeos pay out the best and that sort of thing. But most of these rodeos that we're talking about are maybe paying at least $1,000 for the winner. I mean, there are some that pay far less than that. But the, the rights are going to rodeos that will pay anywhere from one to two, maybe $3,000 for the winner. Um and you'd like to go to enough rodeos to get in, into the top 15 of the standings by the end of the year. That's a huge thing for them. And the standings are determined by how much money you've made. And so if you get into the top 15, which is usually about $60,000 or so, it has been the last couple of years, um, then you get to go to the National Finals Rodeo. And that is 10 nights in Las Vegas, sell out a crowd of 19,000 people every night. And the stakes there are twenty six or twenty seven thousand dollars a round for ten rounds. So you can multiply your money. You can get into the into the national finals by going to a hundred rodeos over the course of the year, and then over ten nights, you might triple or quadruple your money if you have a really good run. Um, and so, three world champions in the family now uh, over two generations, right? Uh, on the cover of the book, by the way, it's the grand. It's a couple of grandkids, right? Um, yeah, actually, now there's four because three of the brothers have won. 
um, and now one of Cody's kids have. So there's actually four rights have won a total of five world championships over, like, I think the last 11 years or so. Um, and, yeah, the, the cover of the book is a picture of Ryder Wright and Stetson Wright, who are two of Cody's boys. And that was taken a few years ago by Josh Hayner, a New York Times photographer. And those boys are now both professional cowboys, and Ryder won the world championship last year. Mm. Uh, so some of the money, uh, is being plowed back into the ranch. Is, is that the way to support the ranch? Is they, they, they want to, they, they want to make sure it continues. Do they want to go back and work it? Yeah, that's kind of, that, that's kind of the, uh, the crux here. And, you know, they don't do this solid accounting. It's not like, you know, they come back from a rodeo weekend and Cody or Bill or anybody else saying, okay, let's divvy this up and give X amount to the ranch or anything. If they are interested, then they will say, you know what, hey, Dad, I wouldn't mind giving some of this money, and if, if this can buy 20 head of cattle, let's go buy some cattle. Or if this will help buy that permit we need to expand a little bit, let's do that. And so nobody's asking them to do it. I mean, Bill is even like, you know, if they want to come do it, they know they know what needs to be done. So now Cody has bought in, and a couple of the other boys have bought in, and now the next generation is starting to buy in. But there's no, like, real arithmetic um, no real expectation going on. It, it's very organic. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I find extraordinary about this family is that they just deal with things as they come. Um, you know, I think it's difficult for them to plan the future too far for all these different reasons that we've been talking about. But they are extraordinary at just dealing with things as they come. And that includes, you know, the next rodeo, you might win $100,000 like, like Cody did in Calgary a few years ago. Now, what are you going to do with that money? Do you want to put that into your, a new house? Do you want to put it into a car? Do you want to put it into a savings account, or do you want to put it into uh, the family ranch? It's totally up to you. Now, um, as we've been talking about in the back of my mind, I'm thinking some of our listeners right now are staunch animal rights advocates. Yep. Um, I wonder if any of that, you know, and some of who criticize rodeoing and criticize some aspects of, of ranching, I don't know if that uh, seeps through mm-hmm. to the to the right family. Do they respond to that? Does it not, uh, does it not come through? Do they not... Um, you know, I, that I, I, yeah, I, I don't think it, I mean, they're certainly aware of it. I mean, I've been to some rodeos where you might see a couple of protesters. You don't see it a lot. Um, rodeo, I think, to its credit, has changed a lot of its rules in terms of what, um, how to provoke animals and how to treat animals. Um, I'm sure there are certainly critics that remain. Um, I, I think it's interesting to, to sort of point out rodeo as being, um, you know, in some way uh, inhumane. Um, Certainly, you look at, like, the, the Bronx these guys are riding. For most part, these top Bronx may compete for 10 or 12 years, and they are usually going to about one rodeo every three weeks. And the rest of the time, they are, I think, taken care of very well and out, out to pasture. Uh, I don't think they're overworked. Um, you know, is that the best lifestyle for them? I don't know. I don't know what else would happen to them otherwise. You know, we're also talking about a, a sport that is part of the tradition of things like ranching. Um, and so I, I, certainly there are plenty of vegans out there that may, that may take exception with how, um, ranchers and the millions of cattle that are killed every, every year to feed the uh, people of the world. Um, so to pick on, you know, rodeo as a sport, I think it's just, you know, emblematic of a lifestyle. Um, I think they've made some changes and I, I've been around the shoots quite a bit and I have not seen anything that has made me kind of go, Ooh, that's not good. Um, you know, uh, that has made me wince. Um, I think those animals, you know, they're respected. You know, this is a lifestyle that these people uh, respect. And these horses and bulls, for example, cost a lot of money, and they have long, long tenures 
Um, so it behooves people to take good care of them. Uh, I know we need to let you get going here. Um, just one last question. What do you what do you take away now, having spent this time with the with the extended Wright family? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there are a lot of takeaways, but I'm you know as I'm just about getting ready to go on a plane from the East Coast back home to California, and I will sit in the window seat and I'll, I'll be staring out the window, looking at this vast flyover country that everybody talks about. And I think people should understand, and I hope they do understand, and if they read the book, they will understand that down below there in all those empty spaces are a lot of people working really, really hard, trying to make a living, trying to hold tight to tradition. Um, you know, these are the kind of people who, who built the West, um, you know, worse and all, whatever. Um, but I certainly now look at, at that kind of Western landscape and think, is it changing? Is it changing for the good? And is there a place for people like this that have helped build the West? Well, thank you very much, John Branch, author most recently of The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West. And uh, as you've heard, he's, uh, he's getting ready to, to board a plane there. We, th- we appreciate uh, you taking some time to be with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Uh, John Branch was back east. Not sure exactly where. He was at the airport, obviously, there. And uh, he was uh, heading home to his uh, home near San Francisco in uh, California. Uh, John Branch is a reporter for the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2013 for Snowfall, a story about a deadly avalanche in Washington State. His latest book that we talked about there, The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West. Our thanks to him. Hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. Uh, here's Jack Schaefer writing in Politico. He says, For a preview of the newspaper industry's coming death, turn your gaze to Colorado, where the withering and emaciated Denver Post finds itself rolling in profits. And uh, the point of the article is that uh, there's a model uh, employed by the owners of the Denver Post and other papers that you can slash uh, staff, you can slash costs, and you can make money in a dying industry. That's the part of it that really stands out to you. And, in fact, the uh, headline in Politico, this is how a newspaper dies. Um, we uh, hope, those of us who love newspapers and uh, and uh, hope for their continued health, hope it's not a dying industry. We're going to talk about the uh, Salt Lake Tribune, which uh, has uh, slashed uh, employees and uh, cut costs. Uh, that announcement was made recently. We'll have the editor of the paper, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, with us tomorrow. Hope that you'll join in the conversation. Thanks for listening today. I'm Jeremy Hobson. E-cigarettes or vapes started as a way to quit smoking, but there are questions about safety and kids may be getting hooked. Unlike conventional cigarettes where youth use them as a way to emulate adults, the e-cigarette epidemic has grown from the young kids up into the adults. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Legendary journalist and author Tom Wolfe has died. Tom's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, defined a generation by following the merry pranksters on their drug-fueled trip through America. We tracked down one of the pranksters and asked how he'll remember Tom Wolfe. Coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Many otherwise astute folks use the terms hot chocolate and hot cocoa interchangeably, probably because they are both hot and chocolatey. But these two beverages are not the same thing. Technically speaking, hot cocoa is made by blending cocoa powder with either milk or powdered milk and sugar, while hot chocolate is what many call sipping chocolate made from chopped bits of actual chocolate, melted and blended with milk or cream. While both hot chocolate and hot cocoa contain chocolate as the focus ingredient, the process for making these hot drinks differs. Hot chocolate is intense, decadent, chocolatey, more than milky, and thick, something like a thin ganache. True drinking chocolate is more velvety than its powdered cousin. You find it commonly in European countries, sipped from steaming, tiny demitasse cups at corner cafes. While typical American fashion is to guzzle our less viscous hot cocoa from jumbo mugs in the parking lot of 7-Eleven. It was, in fact, on a winter day in northern Italy when I tried sipping chocolate for the first time. I'd spent the whole day walking in less than comfortable shoes and inadequate and wet socks. It was cold, the kind of damp cold that a Utah kid never gets used to. The freezing air spilled through the fabric of my coat and my fingers ached. I stopped at a small cafe and sat at a table in the corner. The hot chocolate came in a steaming mug. The surface swirled with milk foam. Two crunchy almond biscotti sat on a charmingly mismatched saucer beside it. I sipped, savored, and warmed. I dipped the crunchy twice-baked cookies and consumed each slathered bite with rapture. It filled me, warmed me, and satisfied me from head to toe. So you can see why I've become a bit fixated on replicating the experience. I've found several recipes and finagled them a bit to achieve perfection. For Italian-style hot chocolate, this is what you can do. Use one cup of half and half. If you aren't a coffee drinker, you may not have half and half in your fridge. And you can substitute 2% milk for adequate creaminess, but I would not go any skinnier than that. Use 2 teaspoons arrowroot. Arrowroot is a thickener like cornstarch, but it makes the drink taste smooth and nutty, as opposed to the slightly gelatinous taste that cornstarch leaves. I found arrowroot in the health food section of the grocery store. Use 3 strips of orange zest. Chocolate and orange is a classic Italian combination. Just peel off a one-inch strip with a vegetable peeler, keeping it as thin as possible. Two tablespoons sugar and four ounces of bittersweet chocolate. 70% cacao is recommended, but I used what I had in my pantry, which was 60%. Bittersweet chocolate chips. Don't consider using those cheap waxy chips you got on sale at Christmas. Splurge on something with lots of cacao. If you don't like dark chocolate, don't despair. Combined with the other ingredients, the dark bitterness of the intense chocolate mellows to creamy sweetness. 
To make it, mix a bit of the cold half and half with the arrowroot in a small bowl until it's smooth. Then, in a saucepan over medium heat, warm the milk and orange zest until it's bubbling around the edges. Remove the orange zest and stir in the sugar and arrowroot mixture. Cook for about one minute more, but don't overcook it or the arrowroot will begin to break down. Then remove it from the heat and whisk in the chocolate until it's smooth and drink up. Serve it in little demitasse cups with a biscotti on the side. And feel free to stick a pinky in the air as you sip. But mostly be very warm and very happy. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and UPR is made possible today with a program day sponsorship from Rand Beecham of Santa Clara, remembering his late wife and 1974 USU graduate Diane Patterson Beecham today on her birthday. Democrats are on track for a rare victory on the Senate floor. They have the votes to overturn the GOP-controlled FCC's decision to repeal Obama-era net neutrality rules. People underestimate the passion of Internet voters at their peril. They are mad, and they want to know what they can do. And this vote will make things crystal clear. I'm Ari Shapiro. The politics behind equal access to the Internet this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.